ADD Cast Episode 56. Greetings. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Paul Fisher, your host, and not only am I glad you're here, but I'm also a weasel. I believed that the audiences for the Balticon podcast and the ADD cast were distinctly different groups of people. As several of you have informed me, that's really not the case. I figured both groups would enjoy Michael Shermer's talk, and while that seems to be true for the most part, I still should have been upfront about it being in both feeds, and I apologize for not doing so. That mea culpa aside, I want to welcome you to part two of the Michael Shermer talk. The talk was put on by NCAS, the National Capital Area Skeptics, and Dr. Shermer reads from his new book, The Mind of the Market, Compassionate Apes, Competitive Humans, and Other Tales from Evolutionary Economics. Dr. Shermer is the author of over 10 books, and if you want to hear his very fine pedigree, please go back to the archives and listen to the intro for part one of his talk. I also want to repeat something that I mentioned in part one about the audio quality. The recording of Dr. Shermer sounds great. However, when the audience asks questions, it is utterly impossible to hear them. To remedy this, I've clipped out the audience questions and replaced them with my own voice. I've tried to stay as close as possible to the original question, but in some cases, I was unable to make out the exact wording. In those cases, I provide a question based on what I could hear of the audience member and the context of Dr. Shermer's reply. Craving more Michael Shermer? Check out his website at www.michaelshermer.com, and Shermer is spelled S-H-E-R-M-E-R. There you can find a ton of links to his books, readings, and interviews. Dr. Shermer has also been a regular on Skepticality. I'm a huge fan of Derek and Swoopy, and if you like this recording, then I know you'll love their stuff. Links to NCAS, The Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer, his books, and his Skepticality interviews can be found on our websites, www.balticonpodcast.org and www.addcast.net. This week, we end with music from Nick Murray. The song is called Evolution. It's a trance tune, which is a bit different from the kind of music we normally play. But I'm a big fan of trance music, and I hope you'll like it too. You can find out more about Nick Murray at his website, myspace.com slash therealnickmurray. And Murray is spelled M-U-R-R-A-Y. This song comes to us courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Links to Nick's website and his Podshow page will also be in our show notes. I'll be playing a promo before and after part two of our featured talk by Michael Shermer. This is for a new fiction podcast that I am totally in love with. Metamore City is a podcast written by Chris Lester with audio production the way I like it. Full cast, mood music, sound effects, and the works. But the most important thing to know about Metamore City is that the writing is a level beyond most everything I've encountered to date. Here's just one example. There is a scene where a vampire is feeding. Most books I've read set this scene as something lustful or something horrific. Chris Lester has turned what I thought would be a tired old scene on its head by making it something beautiful. He creates characters I care about, and that's a requirement if you're going to hold my attention. Intrigued? Listen to Metamore City, and then come out to Balticon, where you can meet Chris Lester in person. 
Also attending Balticon will be Command Line of the Command Line podcast, available at thecommandline.net. I rely on Command Line for news that matters to me in the world of computers and copyright. But there's much, much more, so take a listen. I promise you will not be disappointed. Every dead body tells a story. A broken bone, a bruise, a jagged scar. It's all there if you know what to look for. And when you're a medical examiner in a city where magic and technology collide, the stories can get rather odd. But then who am I to complain? I'm just as dead as the rest of them. Two years ago, the vampires turned me, made me one of their own. Now I work with the police to bring down their criminal empire and pay them back for what they've done to me. Even I never guessed what was waiting for us in the shadows of this city. Evil is rising, and someone has to stop it. It's a good thing I'm not afraid of the dark. My name is Morgan Drowling. Welcome to Metamore City. Metamore City is a sci-fi fantasy podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R-C-I-T-Y dot com. Uh, so if we think of the uh, uh, think of an economy as any social environment and trade as any form of uh, interaction between organisms in a social environment, uh, it helps us understand from an evolutionary sp- perspective what's going on in trade in, in, in an economy. So for example, we know from primate research that uh, chimpanzees who groom one another are more likely to support one another in a fight against a, a third aggressive male, say, for example. These are mostly males. It's a testosterone guy thing. And uh, so this uh, question is, how do, how, do, how do primates resolve conflict? And uh, so when chimp A grooms chimp B, and uh, chimp B gets in a fight from chimp C, who's the alpha male or something, he's much more likely to get support. Sort of, so grooming becomes, grooming, yes, is a hygienic thing. You get the ticks off and all that. Yeah, we, we know that. And it's also, uh, but it's also sort of a uh, political alliance. It's also a bonding thing between individuals. Okay, that's good. But, it, but it's even more than that. It's a social contract. It's a type of reciprocal uh, exchange. So grooming is a kind of trade in an exchange environment, in an, econo- in an economy of a social environment like that. And, um, and so that's how we're building then this sort of evolution of, of an economic system uh, in a much, much broader sense. So uh, I pick up here with uh, one of these thought, famous thought experiments. Many of you probably already heard about heard this. but uh, So you're walking along a railroad line when you come upon a fork in the track and a switch. There are five workers on one track and one worker on the other track. Suddenly you realize that a trolley car is hurtling along and is about to hit and kill the five workers unless you throw the switch and divert the car down the other branch, killing the one worker instead. Kill one to save five. Would you throw the switch? Most people say they would throw the switch. That's a rational calculation. That, that, that seems right. By the way, you can do this yourself. You can go on Mark Hauser's webpage at Harvard and take the little test, see how you do <laughs> There's no, there's no right or wrong answer. <laughs> oh, you're a bastard. <laughs> uh, in a second scenario, instead of coming upon a switch, you happen across a bridge where there is a large man standing next to you. The trolley is once again speeding down the track and is about to hit and kill the five workers on the track ahead of you there. Unless you push the large man onto the track, killing him, but stopping the car. Kill one to save five. Would you shove the big guy off the off the bridge. And don't ask me who it is, because it's, it's Rush Limbaugh, yes. <laughs> uh, most people uh, would say they would not. And uh, Mark's got a huge database. Now, tens of thousands of people have logged on to do this. And, and it's, it's pretty clear that most people would not. And when you ask them why not, it, they, they, they have this sort of visceral sense it would really be wrong. There's something wrong about that. Well, no, that's, that's, that's completely irrational. I mean, the, the moral calculation is exactly the same. If we were really rational calculators, 
it, it shouldn't matter, but it does matter. And the reason that it matters is that switches in people are categorically different, and evolutionary theory explains why. Evolution designed us to value humans over non-humans, kin over non-kin, friends over strangers, in-group members over out-group members, and direct action over indirect action because these differences impacted survival and reproduction. Think of the Old Testament morality of love thy neighbor. In the earliest books of the Old Testament, thy neighbor was thy fellow in-group member, which is why you can have these wonderful moral precepts on one page and flip the page and they're raping and pillaging and destroying the bastards on the other side of the river because, you know, they're bad. So this is an in-group, out-group tribalism morality. And by the end of the Old Testament, particularly with the book of Ruth, you get much more feminization of, the, of Yahweh, and it, Yahweh becomes nicer. <laughs> and then it would, by the, old, the New Testament, Jesus has uh, uh, changed it considerably, where thy neighbor is supposed to also be uh, members of other groups coming in from some other town, something like that. Now, my Jewish friends dispute this. They said, oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, we've always had this tradition of taking care of people in other groups. And so that, that's a disputed thing, but I still stick with my interpretation of that there. So these intuitively felt differences in moral intuitions reflect a rational calculation conducted over the evolutionary eons. What may seem like an irrational behavior today may actually have been rational deep in our Paleolithic past. Um, so... Um, one of the things I'm getting at here is that um, these, what Adam Smith called our, our moral sentiments, uh, the basis of any kind of social system, civil society. Uh, what is the origins of those? And, and the question then becomes, what's the reason for emotions at all? So back to my tipping example. Uh, why would I tip? Okay, well, ethical egoism theory says I, I tip because really it just makes me feel better to make somebody else feel better, or it might alleviate guilt. It's still egocentric, it's still selfish. Uh, I'm not gonna dispute that, but I, what I wanna know is, why should I feel guilty or good about anything? What's the reason to feel anything? And the answer is because emotions motivate organisms to do something, to behave, to move, because our systems are constantly in a state of imbalance. So this is kind of a homeostatic theory of emotions, that is, as organisms moving about the environment, just trying to make a living and get something to eat and get our genes in the next generation, it's pretty basic. Um, uh, we, we are in a constant state of, let's say, uh, thirst or caloric de deprivation. So we constantly have to feel thirsty or hungry. The emotion, the feeling of hunger or thirst is a way of motivating the organism to get up, move around, and find something. Okay, so that, that's pretty simple. That one we get, uh, obviously. Uh, and then moving up just a little bit, say, uh, who you might be attracted to to get your genes, to help you get your genes into the next generation. Well, we now have a fairly sizable body of literature on this in, the, in evolutionary psychology, what people find attractive. Not just in Western cultures, but it looks like these kinds of generalizations apply to almost all cultures around the world, in which women find in men broad shoulders, a narrow waist, a symmetrical body and face. Uh, muscular build, a symmetrical face, so it looks, if you put a mirror there, it wouldn't be dramatically different. Uh, clear complexions and so forth. This is, these are genetic, these are proxies for genetic health. This is the evolutionary psych interpretation of this. Men find attractive in women the same clear complexion, symmetrical face and uh, body, a sort of hourglass shape, waist to hip ratio of 0.67, waist to hip ratio of 0.67. Now nobody walks into a nightclub and says, whoa, there's a Point six eight, close enough. <laughs> uh, nobody's doing any calculating. Uh, evolution has done the calculation for us, and the emotion of whoa, 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 whoa or whatever that feeling is, put in words, is it is a proxy for something else. It's a proxy for I'm attracted to a genetically healthy potential uh, helper from getting my genes in the next generation, something like that, and. Uh, and, and so that, that then, that is a, a sort of a slightly higher order emotion, I suppose. And, and we could just go right up the scale, that these are different emotions to drive us to do something. You don't have to do the calculation. Uh, the calculation's been done for us already by, um, by evolution. So if we take a, um, another one of these game theory uh, examples, and economists use game theory models because it's a way to control um, the parameters of, of behavior. So uh, one of them is called the ultimatum game. Uh, it's a kind of an interesting task. Let's say um, I take you two here and say you're two starving students that uh, are in my class because this is where you get most of your subjects. This is another future subject for me for my Scientific American column is that most of what we understand about human behavior comes from white rats and 
college students that are 18 and 19 years old. And uh, this is really problematic for generalizing. So um, so I, I give you $100. And uh, now you have to make her an offer of a split of the 100 bucks. If she accepts the offer, you both get to keep the money. If she rejects your offer, neither of you get any money. I just take it back. Now, 100 bucks, you're a poor, starving student, so you're fairly motivated. And uh, so how much do you, do you offer her? Now, according to uh, uh, the theory of homo economicus, that is, economic man, humans are um, rational calculators. We're relatively free to make choices as we wish uh, and calculate, and that we will maximize our utility. Well, you max, utility maximizers. That is, our, we will maximize the value we get for the free choices that we make. This is the theory of Homo economicus, and it's total bunk. Uh, this is the myth of Homo economicus that, we're, that I'm debunking in this book. Okay, so by that theory, though, he should offer like a 90-10, or hell, even 99-100. Just offer her 10 bucks. Now, she should accept that because you're a poor, starving student. You came into the lab five minutes ago. You had nothing, and I'm going to give you 10 bucks. And they inevitably will turn that down. Why? Because it's not fair. Well, wait. Uh, you're going to, this is how an economist would answer this. You're going to pay 10 bucks to punish this guy for making an unfair offer. So we're willing not only to, to say it's unfair, we're willing to pay money uh, to put a value on what fairness is worth. And uh, in this case, 10 bucks, and really 20 bucks, and really even close to 30 bucks offers, 70-30 offers. Anything below that is usually rejected. So you could probably get away with a 60-40, maybe 65-35, something like that. Uh, they, will, uh, they will accept it. And, uh, but why? why? Who says that's not fair? Um, I mean, there's no rules in law about the ultimatum game. <laughs> um, well, because we have this deep sense of fairness. So, uh, and we know this uh, from two lines of inquiry. One is primate research. You do the same kind of ultimatum game with primates. You have to jigger it a bit because they don't understand language or money. Uh, but they trade in fruit. They love fruit. Fruit is like money. Nicely fresh sliced peaches and apples and bananas on a nice bucket of ice. And ooh, it's delicious. And you don't feed them for a few hours and they're hungry. And Anyway, so picture the scenario. This is Franz Duval's wonderful research where you have a, a, a platform here with two uh, chimpanzees, or it might be two capuchin monkeys. Anyway, say two chimps. And they're in, they're in a, two separate cages with a barricade, but it's see through it. And uh, below is a platform uh, in which if they pull the two ropes like this, the platform comes up. If only one of them pulls the rope, the platform does this, and the bucket of nice fruit falls off the platform, and neither of them gets it. But if they pull it up, one of them gets the fruit. Now, what Franz wanted to know is, if we iterate the game, they play it over and over, if this guy doesn't share the reward with this guy, what happens? What happens is, is a complete breakdown of the system. He refuses to participate. He's not going to pull the rope. They get upset. They throw things. They're, 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 they're visibly uh, expressing uh, a sense of injustice and unfairness. Um, now, either that evolved you know, over multiple lines of uh, evolutionary uh, time, or it, it's, it's a common part of our common ancestry dating back over six million years to our common ancestor and even further because capuchin monkeys who uh, probably date back common ancestors 15 million years or so have itty bitty tiny brains so obviously they're not calculating anything they're just responding on an emotional deep level to a sense of unfairness why would that be unfair because social primates social species have to have some means of conflict resolution and some sense of fairness in exchange or else the group cannot be cohesive enough to stay together now, whether this happens because of individual selection, where the individual is the target of selection, or group selection, like David Sloan Wilson thinks. This is a big battle between Wilson and Dawkins. I played out in the next issue of Skeptic, by the way. Uh, and it's an interesting debate, but I, I don't really care about the debate. It, it doesn't matter to me exactly how that came about. Clearly, it's there. And, uh, and we also know this now from a second line of inquiry through what's called neuroeconomics. That is, you put subjects inside a, a fMRI, a big MRI tube, and you have them play these games. I have to picture how, how this is done. Because um, we've all read the, the popular articles that are like, ooh, there's a brain, there's a scan, there's that red thing lighting up, and that's your brain on money, or that's, that's your brain shopping, that's the module for shopping. And, you know, there's a bit of artificiality to this, to say the least. There, aren't, there are no brain scans that look anything at all like that, and that's not any one person's brain. 
I didn't know any of this until I actually went over to UCLA and, and participated in one of these experiments and had them explain to me everything that they're doing. And, and uh, this may yet, too, be another column for skepticism <laughs> about some of it. It's a little bit of phrenological. Uh, there's a little bit of emphasis, particularly in the in pop literature, to pinpoint that spot and go, that's the you know, place where whatever. Anyway, um, so um, uh, what they do is they run an experiment on, say, maybe 15 to 20 different people. And then because nobody lays there perfectly still, they get you wedged in there pretty good. The head moves around a little bit, so they have to have a statistical program that averages out all the little head movements for just you. And then they average out all the heads, which are slightly different sizes and shapes and so on, of all 15 to 20 different subjects, and that those are statistically averaged. And then you have all the control conditions and the experimental conditions, and you have to contrast those and average all those out for all the people, for all the movements and so on. You end up with this database of just like a billion little data points that are all averaged over and then artificially colored, because when you see the brain scans, it's just black and white. And so they have to add artificial color to get the contrast, and that's what appears in Discover Magazine. Uh, it's all filtered down. And uh, anyway, so I went over this lab at UCLA. I couldn't wait to go in and try it. I want to see my brain on whatever it is. And, and uh, these kind of prisoner's dilemma or ultimatum games, they're done uh, on, uh, on computer screens. So when you're put inside the tube, uh, you have this big helmet on that they're going to scan you with, and you have these goggles, and the goggles have little TV monitors in them. The TV monitors are the computer screens out in the other room where they're running the experiment. And they're giving you choices. Do you, want, you, you, do you like Coke or Pepsi? You know, they do all these marketing things. They'll show you the Pepsi logo and the Coke logo, and you pick the one you like or whatever. They don't actually care which one you're picking. They want to know which parts of the brain are lighting up. And it turns out in this particular example, amazingly, maybe not, Coca-Cola logo uh, generates like three or four times more dopamine receptor sites to light up than <laughs> Pepsi does. And... Uh, uh, Dopamine receptor sites are, dopamine is sort of the feel-good reward drug. When you learn something and reward it, you give a pellet to the rat or whatever, it gets a little, a little shot of dopamine. And the dopamine helps the neurons, uh, neural pathways to, to repeat and get connected. And uh, that, that's in the hypothalamus and a, a half a dozen other places in the brain where this happens in relation to drug addiction and any kind of addiction, sex and so forth. It's, it's really the feel-good thing. So. Um, and you can see when these subjects are playing these games, if they're cooperating and they're making money and it's going well, these dopamine centers light up. So that's another uh, uh, sort of um, line of evidence that this is a deeply ingrained, uh, innate sense of morality that we have in this broader sense of morality. Anyway, I couldn't stay inside the tube. Uh, I had no idea that I was claustrophobic, but man, oh man, uh, they're cramming me in there with the wedges and the this and the helmet and the goggles and the earphones and the things louder than hell. And, and Russell, the, Russell Paldrek, the, the scientist, he gives me this little button to push. I said, what's this for? He says, well, you might need it when you're in there. I said, for what? He goes, well, you might want to come out. I said, no, no, I'm, a, I'm a Arnold California Manliman. You know, I can stay in there, no problem. He goes, you better take it because uh, I can't stay in there. I went, you can't stay in here. He goes, no, I hate it. I can't stand it. And I said, oh, I'll be fine. He says, take it. So I get in there, and like five minutes later, I'm like, oh, Jesus, get me out of here. And because, you know, I'm fairly broad-shouldered. The thing is just brushed right up against you, and your head, you're way back in the tube, and you can't move. You, can't, you don't even feel like you could wiggle out. You feel like it, you're entomb, entombed. And he tells me that one out of five, 20% people can't do an MRI. So I, now they, they can do it. They dope you up, but that kind of messes up a, a, bra a brain study <laughs> of what you're supposed to be thinking about if you're kind of dopey. So anyway, I couldn't do it, but uh, it was uh, interesting to read about. So that's the line of inquiry about that. So between the primate research, cross-cultural research, uh, and the, neuro, the neuroeconomic research, um, uh, we have that. And one more line of inquiry. Uh, with, um, uh, with, with hormones, that is, um, I'll pick up the story with uh, some research by my friend Paul Zak at Claremont uh, from the book. There's an old English proverb that says, it's an equal feeling to trust everyone and to trust no one. So begins Paul Zak, a professor of economics at Claremont Graduate University, who is taking his profession down to the molecular level in his search for the neurochemistry of trust which he believes is grounded in oxytocin. Oxytocin is a hormone, as everybody already knows, but it's the bonding hormone between mother and nursing mothers and infants. But it turns out oxytocin is a, an attachment bonding chemical for any kind of human relationship that's positive. So uh, Helen Fisher's book, Why We Love, for example, has a whole 
discussion of oxytocin and the sort of the love cocktail that happens in that first 18 months when you're gaga. Uh, and this is why it takes 18 months after you break up to kind of get over it because all those chemical bonds are still in there and it takes a while to get rid of them. Anyway, um, and so uh, uh, this got Zach thinking about, well, if that, that's kind of, trade is just a form of social relationship, there must be something to that. Um, so he says, we know that trust is a very strong predictor of national prosperity, but I wanted to know what makes two people trust one another. Uh, so Zach is the oxytocin man. It says so right on his license plate. <laughs> this is California, you see. We all <laughs> announce what we are. and That's more of a guy thing, I guess. Anyway, so tall and handsome with square shoulders and the physique of someone who is, works out regularly. Zach's firm grip and warm smile exude, well, trust. Trained in traditional economics in the mid-1990s, his research led him to connect trust to economic growth. A 1996 study on trust in 42 countries, for example, asked people in their native language, generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you cannot be too careful in dealing with people? The results were as diverse as they were striking. At the low end of the trust scale, only 3% of those surveyed in Brazil and 5% in Peru believe that their fellow citizens are trustworthy compared to 65% of Norwegians and 60% of Swedes who trust one another. Following in, the middle of the, following in the middle of the scale are the United States at 36% and the United Kingdom 44%. The rankings remain essentially unchanged even when they are controlled for income. Trust is high in the countries of Scandinavia and East Asia, low in the countries of South America, Africa, and especially the former communist bloc. As Zach says, the simple correlation between national rates of investment, that is gross investment per gross domestic product, and trust is strongly positive. Uh, so that when trust is low, investment lags. Uh, so what do you have to do? What Paul wanted to know is uh, on two levels, a so, sort of social, political, economic level, and then a neurochemistry level. Uh, what does it take to get people to trust one another? Uh, and uh, and one one of the sort of mechanisms that greases the the wheels of of commerce is trust. Okay, so how do we get people to trust one another politically? Um, you need a, a liberal democracy and a relatively free market economic system. So here's what we need. This is sort of summary summation summation of this research: protection of civil liberties, freedom of the press, freedom of association, freedom of travel. That is good roads and a reliable infrastructure, you know, where the bridges don't collapse, and stuff like that. Freedom of communication, the working phone systems. You pick up the phone and you actually get a dial tone. I mean, there's lots of countries where you don't even get a dial tone. Ecuador, for example, has a pathetic landline system, and no one uses it. They all just use cell phones. The government-run landline system that never, that never made it. Um, mass education, a reliable banking system, a sound currency. You don't have to put your money in the mattress to store it, that kind of thing, and especially the freedom to trade. Uh, Zach even found a co connection between a clean environment and trust, whereby people in countries with polluted environments show higher levels of estrogen antagonists, which lowers their levels of oxytocin and thus their feelings of trust. So Zach started running these um, uh, ultimatum game type exchanges. There's lots of variations of them. Another one would be if I had you go back and forth, say, ten times. You can make an offer to her, whatever she accepts, triples in value. But you have to offer something back to him, and that triples in value, and so on. Both of you are going to make a lot of money if you cooperate. But if you start defecting, then the whole system is going to break down. So um, that and prisoner's dilemma and so on. But instead of brain scans, Paul drew their blood to measure their oxytocin level, which is pretty dang clever and, uh, and also pretty uncomfortable. So you have to pay students a lot of money, and you, have to have, you can't just get any old graduate student to do it. They have to be able to draw blood and... And I'm, I'm pretty sure I couldn't do this either. <laughs> um, but what he found was that whenever subjects are cooperating, there's a lot of mutual trust there, they get a big spike in oxytocin. Now, it's a fairly short-lived half-life of the oxytocin in the system. just a few minutes. So you have to do this in real time fairly quickly. And then he wanted to know um, what's, the, what's the causal vector. I mean, who, what's the cause and what's the effect? And uh, so to test that, he had another experimental condition, which they had a nose spray that they would... Uh, take one group and in the nose spray is oxytocin so you're actually injecting oxytocin into the brain right through the blood-brain barrier boom they get a nice hit of oxytocin and those guys uh, offered like two or three times the amount of the non-oxytocin group feeling really generous 
And of course, they don't know that they're getting oxytocin. They're just, I just felt really generous. I just like this guy, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, anyway, so that's, that's a nice example of that, um, um, of that research. Another line of I inquiry that supports that. Let me say one more thing. Oh, uh, Paul did find that uh, about 2 to 3% of his subjects are completely unaffected by oxytocin. He calls them the bastards. <laughs> I call them I call them Zach's bastards. That, uh, which also happens to coincide with the number, the percentage of sociopaths in society. It's possible. This is fairly speculative, but it's possible that there there are just some people for whatever reason, genetics or broken homes or who knows, environment, genes, combination, uh, that just don't respond to all the normal social cues that uh, develop trust and and make attachment connections between strangers and. And they just don't respond to any of those biochemical things. They're just, well, bastards. And so, you know, that's what we have jails for. Because <laughs> uh, something like, well, sociologists of, of crime uh, say that something like half or 60% of all criminals, are they would label sociopaths. Although I don't completely trust that because the label itself is kind of fuzzy. And there's probably some labeling issues of you go in there expecting to see something. Anyway, but nevertheless, that's one possibility, which then... Uh, we've taken to, Paul and I were doing some projects together, we've taken to a, sort of another level, maybe, this is again speculative, that maybe having the bastards in a system helps push the system to a more refined moral assessment quality. That is, you have to really be careful because you don't, never know who's a member of that 2 to 3 percent. I mean, there, there'll be a bell curve, right? So some are more moral than others generally, but most people for the most part, most of the time are nice and cooperative. But, there's, but the further out you go, you have to really be on your toes to not get taken by somebody who's a really good liar uh, and that you're not very good at detecting their lies. And maybe there's this handful way out the end that, will, that, that are just really to be avoided. So we have to really refine our social systems in our interaction systems for detecting lies and, and detecting cheaters. And maybe that's helped us become even more moral, that is, by a refined moral system. Anyway, it's just kind of a speculative thought on that. Um, okay, so I'm going to end then with um, just reading a couple of final passages here. Um, the problem here then, of course, is um, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that trade is a means of, of um, creating social glue between uh, complete total strangers uh, between groups. Uh, it's the between group problem. We're so tribal and xenophobic. How do we break that down? The psychology behind diffusing intergroup aggression involves turning potentially dangerous total strangers into prospectively helpful honorary friends. This process is enabled through the creation of social institutions that encourage, enable, and enforce positive social interactions that lead to trust. One of the most powerful of these forms of interactions is trade the effects of which I want to elevate into a principle based on the observation by the 19th century French economist Frederick Bastiat. Where goods do not cross frontiers, armies will. Bastiat's principle not only helps us understand how hunter-gatherers made the transition to consumer traders, it also illuminates one of the primary causes of conflict. Its corollary elucidates one of the principal steps toward conflict resolution. If Bastiat's principle holds that where goods do not cross frontiers, armies will, then its corollary dictates that where goods do cross frontiers, armies will not. This is a principle, not a law, since there are exceptions, both historically and today. Trade will not prevent war, but it attenuates its likelihood. Thinking in terms of probabilities instead of absolutes, trade between groups increases the probability that peaceful and stable relations will continue and decreases the probability that instabilities and conflicts will erupt. So let's return to where we began the book with the Yanomama hunter-gatherers and how they evolved into Manhattan consumer traders. When missionaries first began working with the Yanomama, they discovered that if they provided the native peoples with tools for the procurement and production of food and other resources, the amount of Yanomama intervillage fighting was greatly reduced. The great Yanomamo ethnographer Napoleon Shagnon, who originally gave the Yanomamo their Fierce People moniker, his book was called Yanomamo, the Fierce People, uh, which is no longer called that because people sort of uh, mistook that. Like, they're always fierce, you know. They're not fierce when they eat and when they love and so on. I mean, most of the time, most people are just sitting around you know, doing nothing. Anyway, he discovered that the Yanomamo are also sophisticated traders because trade creates political alliances. Following the dictum, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Yanomamo intervillage trade and reciprocal food exchanges serve as a powerful social glue in the creation of political alliances. 
Village A cannot go to Village B and announce that they're worried about being conquered by the more uh, powerful Village C, since that would reveal their own weakness. Instead, Village A forms an alliance with Village B through trade and reciprocal feasting, and as a result, they not only gain military protection, but also encourage inter-village peace, like the potlatch. You throw a potlatch because then they owe you something. And it's not that you're trying to get something back from them. You're creating a, a sense of goodwill between two groups as a political alliance. As a byproduct of this politically motivated economic exchange, even though each Yanomamo band could produce all the SKUs it needs for survival, they often set up a division of labor and a system of trade. The unintended consequence is an increase in both wealth and SKUs. The Yanomamo trade not because they're innate naturalists or innate altruists or nascent capitalists, but because they want to form political alliances. Without these frequent contacts with neighbors, Shagnon explains, alliances would be much slower in formation and would be even more unstable once formed. A prerequisite to stable alliance is repetitive visiting and feasting, and the trading mechanism serves to bring about those visits. In other words, where, Yanomamo, uh, where goods cross Yanomamo frontiers, Yanomamo armies do not. So, in reading my final passage here, um, um, I, I, I then move so from, from the Bastiat's principle to uh, what I call the uh, uh, Starbucks corollary to um, Bastiat's principle. That is, where Starbucks cross frontiers, armies will not. That is, the free trade of products between peoples and open access to services across geographic borders obviates the necessity of political borders and thereby decreases the probabilities that armies will cross them. To the Starbucks corollary, I add the Google theory of peace, <laughs> where information and knowledge cross frontiers, armies will not. That is, the free trade of information between peoples and open access to knowledge across geographic borders obviates the necessity of political borders and thereby decreases the probabilities that armies will cross them. A stirring example can be seen in Europe. Since the Treaty of Rome and the formation of the European Union, which integrated disparate and historically divided European nations under one economic umbrella, where once invasions and wars were commonplace throughout a thousand years of European history, they are now unthinkable. Try it. Imagine Germany invading France and waging war upon her now. Or picture France motoring its armies through the Channel and marching them into London to declare the country French. What once made for dramatic literature now sounds like pulp fiction. The wickification of the economy, wickonomics as it's becoming known, adds to the Google theory of peace the entire world economy as practiced by and participated in by billions of people. And Wikipedia is the right analog for this emerging economic phenomenon. It is the collaboratively created encyclopedia that runs on wiki, software that allows real-time and constant editing of documents by anyone, anywhere, anytime. It's an open-sourced, peer-produced, mass-collaborated, bottom-up, self-organized, emergent property of millions of people choosing to build the modern equivalent of the Alexandrian Library, whose purpose it was to make the sum of the world's knowledge available to everyone in one location. Granted, the ancient Alexandrian Greeks had far less knowledge to store than we do today by orders of magnitude, but we have the World Wide Web and computers. In the long run, no dictator, demagogue, priest, president, or any other pretender to power will be able to control the Googlefication, Wikification, Ebayification, Mapquestification, YouTubeification, MySpaceification of information, knowledge, geography, personal relationships, markets, and the economy. Chinese bureaucrats can attempt to put all the firewalls and controls they want on a potential billion potential Chinese web surfers, but they will never be able to prevent knowledge, products, and people from finding their way to those who seek them. Freedom finds a way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, sir. The logical expression of what you've said is globalization is good, but generally speaking, globalization is argued for by free trade people and conservatives in general. Business people in general, globalization is good. But we seem to have a much, much smaller contingent of people marketing for regionalization. Buy your food locally. Make sure it's organic. You know, local market, which is generally associated with the left. Yeah, fair trade. So, 
do you want to extend your argument to one side or the other, or does it matter? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, yes, in principle, I'm in favor of globalization. Absolutely, just open up the borders, uh, at least the, the the you know the economic borders for sure, and maybe later the political borders. Just make everything porous. This is what the internet has done for information. Why not make it available to all other forms of product? The information is just another product, um, and that that dictators and, and demagogues want to control. So the the less they the can control on that, these are sharp pins that just step and put my shoes on. Uh, that the less they the, the less they can control that the less they can control their free, their people and therefore there's more freedom. So in principle, in the long run, yes, I'd be in favor of that. Where I'm from, for example, in California, uh, immigration. Well, we've always had this issue of immigration. Mexicans have been coming across the border, and they come up to where I live and so on, and they work. Uh, and you can see them every morning at the Home Depot, uh, just out in the curb, waiting to get picked up to go do some work. And uh, uh, and we use them all the time. And uh, I don't know why this suddenly became a political issue. Nothing's different in our, my neighborhood than it's ever been. But uh, the market simply decides how many we need. Um, and uh, why, just let them come up. Let them come over here. I don't care. Just, but make them sign the guest book. <laughs> and uh, if they're gonna, you know, if they're gonna pay taxes, then give them services. If they're not, then no services. Uh, anyway, so I, uh, uh, to, to me, this is a nice example where the market would simply sort that out. They wouldn't come here if there wasn't work. They come here because there's work, so obviously the, there's a need, and supply and demand and so forth. That that would be my answer to the immigration problem, and I'm quite sure I'd never get elected, uh, <laughs> given that. Yes, sir. Would you agree that crime is an economic evolutionary success strategy, and that terrorism is really crime writ large, essentially scaled up extortion? Yeah, that's a good question. Is crime just a uh, uh, another form of uh, sort of defection in in an evolutionary stable strategy game? Uh, and terrorism is then the form of crime writ large. A absolutely, that's uh, well put. I hadn't really given that much thought, but that's yeah, that's another way of looking at it. If we look at the entire economy or the entire world as a game with boundaries and rules that we're supposed to obey, inevitably you get a certain amount of defectors on the rules in this game theory, just like any game. Um, and uh, and so this is called the, the in economics is called the freeloader problem. You know, if we have a, a common thing, you know, we can all pool together and, and support the fire department. Uh, what about those that don't pay? You know, we're going to put out their house when it catches on fire. And, and, and so taxes, not everybody pays their taxes. They get the social services anyway. That hardly seems fair. Well, it appears that um, in evolution, as long as you have a majority who are participating in the cooperating in the system and obeying the rules, the, the, uh, the handful of freeloaders can be carried along. Uh, the group can survive. It's only when you get up to, say, almost half or something are defecting that the system breaks down. So uh, a, a new subject I'm working on now that's not even in the book because I just finished a cover story for Scientific American on doping in sports. Why does it happen? So I applied a game theory model to this to, to show how what happens, you get this cascading defecting uh, um, effect throughout the pro sports community as soon as the top guys begin doping because their closest competitors, because the drugs now matter, they, they make a huge difference, 10 to 20 percent in performance, uh, that the, the, the closest competitors also have to dope in order to stay up. So the next guys down that want those jobs, they have to do it, and you're all the way down into the high schools because uh, somebody wants the next rung up and so on. So the only, the only way to defeat it is the rules have to be enforced. Well, first of all, you have to have rules. When Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were in their home run derby, steroids weren't banned. It was just sort of understood you're not supposed to do it. But there was no official, if you do it, you're out. No, no rules like that. And then finally, when they implemented the rules in, after 2001, they only tested once before the season and once after the season. Well, if you don't, you can have the rules. But if, if everybody knows they're never going to be enforced, then, then the system will break down inevitably. So I sort of feel bad for these guys, um, honestly. Because, uh, I mean, in part, yes, they're immoral because they cheated once the rule was there, I suppose. But in any game, if, if, the, if the boundaries and rules are not enforced, then what's the point of the game? And so I really more blame the, the uh, directors and the uh, administrators of the sport. My sport's bike racing, and, and our sport's the worst. Um, and uh, as I like to say, the drug uh, testers are just five years away from the, the drug takers catching up with them, and always will be.
Uh, it's an evolutionary arms race, and so you just need to jack up the enforcement of the rules, or else the system breaks down. Breaks down. So the, 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 the principle would apply to crime in any other society. This is uh, why uh, uh, the other Wilson, um, um, James Q. Wilson, uh, is his broken theory, broken window theory of crime. I mean, once you start with just a little graffiti and a couple broken windows in a neighborhood, and, and they're not fixed or the violation's not enforced, then you get a little bit more and you get a cascading uh, collapse of the, uh, of the rules and then the game is up. Do you think it's fair to say that most of the economics being taught in our universities today is based upon incorrect assumptions about human behavior, or is it basically a waste of time? Yeah, the question is on uh, how economics is taught in, in the academy, um, it, uh, and is it a waste of time if they don't understand this behavioral economics stuff? They all do now understand the behavioral economics stuff. The revolution has happened, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, I haven't sampled a, a lot of uh, economics departments, but it, yes, I mean, D Daniel Kahneman's and Amos Tversky's re research on all this, they're experimental psychologists who applied uh, models of um, of uh, cognitive biases to economic problems. Yes, every economist knows this now. So hopefully it's, it is taught, um, at, at least part of economics. I mean, there's all the other stuff in economics which is perfectly sound, having to do with money and taxes and income, supply and demand and all that. Supply and demand, by the way, you can, you can see it in these uh, capuchin monkeys. You train them to trade pebbles for food, that nicely fresh cut fruit that they like. And so let's say banana slices are two pebbles and, and a peach is three pebbles and an apple is four pebbles. Anyway, you just train them and they just swap it. You come around with the food and they, they hand you the stuff and it's money. They're, they're doing an exchange there. And then in the second uh, condition, you just double the price of one of the things that they like and you see how much they want to consume, how much they want to spend on it. And predictably so, the curve, the supply and demand curve in primates matches perfectly the human supply and demand curve. So supply and demand is an evolved, deeper evolutionary uh, economic phenomenon. Yep. I'm curious about what sounds like your endorsement of the James Q. Wilson theory. In New York City, basically, that was Giuliani's theory, and what it led to was an economic consequence in that there was a huge surge in the costs to the city of payouts for police abuse. Because they were shooting people. They were beating people. The Amadou Diallo case, 44 bullets, of which only about 17 hit him, by the way. They were not only abusive, they were incompetent. But they did kill the guy. And that's a consequence of so-called zero tolerance. No broken window. I don't buy it. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, he uh, <laughs> is skeptical of the broken window theory of crime. Well... Uh, but aren't those two different things? There's the theory of the origins of the crime in the first place, and, but what you're talking about is how, what to do about it. Maybe hiring a bunch of thugs to clean it up isn't the solution. But the problem is the, the origins of the problem is a separate question. So I, I think we should keep those separate. How might the social engineering of the tax code fit into some of the metaphors? Uh, just eliminate taxes, yes. That would... <laughs> Sometimes I like, like Ron Paul. <laughs> Eliminate the income tax. Uh, when I was in college at Pepperdine, uh, we, uh, my roommate and I went to one of these uh, you don't have to pay ta income tax seminars that uh, these guys, guys were running around putting on. And I remember thinking, this just can't be right because if it was true and people started doing this, our government would, wait, no, this can't be right. They would not put up with this. No way. Anyway, my roommate, uh, he didn't file for like 15 years. Anyway, they, they caught up with him. He's still a good friend of mine. He's still paying. Uh, so uh, uh, they don't screw around with stuff like that. The only, really, the only major organization to ever beat the IRS on that question is, of all people, the Church of Scientology. I mean, they're, they're just a big, rich company that makes a hell of a lot of money putting on uh, self-help seminars. That's really what it is. And, uh, but they call themselves a church, so they don't have to pay income tax. Wow, what a racket, which is why they want to get into Germany, is in Germany, churches get, um, you get money, you get taxes, they get a subsidy from the government. But the Germans have had some experience with fringe groups in the past, so they're <laughs> not too tolerant of that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. What you said about capuchin monkeys and people, you increase the price and you see how much if it's done in very small increments like Starbucks, it goes up 10 cents, it goes up another 15, it goes up another 20. People are still doing it. I'm still doing it. Yes, I know, me too, yeah. If they told me my $2.28 coffee was now $4, I'd say buy. 
But if they came in and they said it's now 250, 260, you know, small increments. Yes. Uh, if you incrementally slowly uh, raise the price, would the supply and demand curve change? Well, it does. I don't know this literature that well. I mean, there's just a gigantic body of literature on supply and demand curves in economics. And uh, I, I know the curve is still there and the changes, the slope changes, something like that. But it, I, I think it's still there. Well, it depends. It's about the slope and how steep the slope is. Apparently, your slope for Starbucks is very steep because it means regardless of how much they change the price, you're willing to buy it. You're an economist or something. Okay, yeah, so there you go. Yeah. Dang it. <laughs> they do. Uh, let's go right here. I have a very politically incorrect question. Okay, PC, non PC, yep. Why in this auditorium is there an absolute majority of white people? Why are there all uh, white people here? I don't know. I didn't even notice. Uh, well, well, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, well, I guess what you're asking is why is, the, I suppose, the skeptical, humanist, atheist community... Well, this is changing. I mean, when I got into it in the early 90s, it was mostly just old white guys. Now, at least we got a lot of women, a lot of young people. It's getting better. You know, it's uh, uh, diversity comes about slowly. We're getting there, I guess. Um, yes, ma'am. How do monopolies fit into your scenario? And are they self-adjusting or are they a disruption? Okay, monopolies. Um, I never worry about monopolies. Uh, so I do have a, a discussion in the book about that. Um, I don't think the government needs to do anything about monopolies. Take Microsoft, for example. Take Microsoft Explorer, for example. Uh, did we really need the government to come in there and knock them back? I mean, Explorer sucks, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, Safari and Firefox far outsurpassed uh, Explorer. These big corporations will simply lumber along and get worse and worse. Think of General Motors and Ford. They simply can't compete because of their own gigantic bureaucracy. You really don't need government to get in there and, and do something about it. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, but but even so, um, I think we have not completed Smith's revolution, which is that um, is should the economy be producer oriented or consumer oriented? Mercantilism is producer oriented. We have to uh, protect our producers from those foreign producers. The hell with the consumers. They can just pay a higher price for our domestically grown uh, grapes to make wine in Scotland, say, versus France. This was Smith's example. Uh, so really, you're punishing your own citizens just to protect a handful of producers. That's zero-sum, mercantilist, producer-oriented economy, and it's wrong. It's wrong just on a pragmatic level. You'll have greater wealth for your nation if you do it the other way. And all the way up to Reagan bailing out the Harley-Davidson. It seems like such a nice thing. Good old Harleys. It's an all-American kind of thing. You know, They have you know, a couple hundred employees. Maybe it was a thousand at the time. Something like that. We, and we got to save them from those evil Japanese motorcycle uh, manufacturers. Well, I had a motorcycle. I had a Honda motorcycle when all this happened. And the prices went way up simply because Reagan just doubled the uh, tax, the um, import tax on all motorcycles. So... Millions of American consumers had to pay 50 to 100% more for motor, Japanese motorcycles simply to protect the jobs of about 1,000 Harley-Davidson employees. So that's a producer-oriented economy. We still haven't realized Smith's revolution. Did that apply to the Honda Goldwing, which were all made in Ohio? That was before the Goldwing 1,000 unit. Let's take one, one more, or should we quit? Oh, we got to go because we got to, yeah, yeah, okay. We have to vacate the facility by four. We so we'll do the book our, signing, then we can talk afterwards. And we'll reconvene. I thank our speaker. All right, thank you. Thanks again. Okay, so um, you know that uh, promo that we're supposed to be doing for the command line? Yes. Um, since it's already so late, I was thinking about splitting some of the duties. Yeah, out no, among... not at all. No, Brooks Law. What's Brooks Law? Clearly states that splitting development work among N programmers is expected to have an advantage that is proportional N, but the cost associated with coordinating and then merging their work is uh, proportional to N squared. Uh, what? Uh-huh. What does that mean? Uh, basically, adding manpower to an already late project just makes it later. Okay. Where'd you get that from? Because I know you didn't come up with that on your own. I got it from the command line. Uh 
was it one of his hacker word of the week? Yes, it was. I see. So the command line is good for not only the hacker word of the week, but also for uh, all kinds of geek news, tech news, hacker cracker news, and uh, copyright issues. Yes. Dude, I think we just did our promo. Oh, yeah. So that would be at thecommandline.net. Indeed. Okay, well, the picture you see before you is a very familiar one, and I think we'd all agree, whatever our um, scientific or other views, that it's a very beautiful metaphor for the origin of human beings. Um, However, as we well know, the notion that it's just a metaphor is uh, alien to large numbers of people, because very many people, perhaps even the majority...
You can't control the stimulus. Control the response.